Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 95. We're going to join one of the bi-weekly market gatherings held at Fort Wilshire in 1825, where the Amakosa, English settlers, Trekboers and the Khoikhoi met to exchange goods. Then we bid Cape Governor Lord Charles Somerset adieu. The fair that had been established by Sir Rufain Duncan on the banks of the Kaiskamer River was flourishing by 1825. Boxes of beads and brass goods, buttons, coils of wire, looking glasses, alias spectacles, scissors, cotton textiles, European clothing and shoes, all were exchanged for ivory gum and cattle hides brought by the Amakosa and the Khoikhoi. As the traders travelled to the fair, they would pass elephants that could still be seen roving in the area in great numbers, although the British settlers, like the Boers before them, had taken to shooting these pachyderms down by the dozens so they could also benefit from selling the ivory. The great herds were being shot out of the Eastern Cape, although they could be found all the way to 1919. That's when the government passed an extermination order, and after the bloodletting, elephants could only be found deep in the Nisna forests and in Addo. But disappearing even quicker were the lions, the wild dogs, the rhino, and a host of other wildlife. The coming of the breech-loading rifle accelerated the end of these magnificent creatures. Fort Wilshire is between Alice and Petty, just down the river from the confluence with the Tumi, roughly 70 kilometres from East London. A company of the 49th Hertfordshire Regiment was barracked at the fort, and they'd been there for over a year, and had only good things to say about the Amatkosa. And everything appeared to be quiet on the frontier for the first time in many years. Ingrika often travelled to Fort Wilshire with his beautiful wife Tutula, and in November 25 and December they caused a stir. They were the other royal couple visiting the English settlers back in the early 1820s. Also on hand was Thomas Phillips, who had arrived as an 1820 settler and decided to undertake an extensive journey of the Eastern Cape by late 1825. He was a man of opulence back in England. He had seven children. All had joined him on farms along the frontier. By late 1825, his wanderings had taken him to Inglika's great place as the chief and Tutula were preparing for the journey to the fort on the Kaiskama River. Inglika had dressed up in English gear with hat and trousers, which most observers said seemed to diminish his power as a respected chief. It was Tutula, however, who stole the show, and Phillips wrote in his journal that night, The lady who seems to have him under the most bondage. Inglika was indeed bonded. Remember, he'd kidnapped Tutula from Ntlambe, his uncle, 14 years earlier, and Ntlambe had never forgiven his nephew. When Phillips met Tutula, she held out her hand quite gracefully, he said, and her walk was perfectly courtly. He described her as tall and shapely, then noted her makeup. Her head was uncovered, having just come from under the operation of the hairdresser, who had well clotted it with red clay, and her whole face, neck and arms were rouged over with the same material, delicately put on with a small piece of supple skin. She was impressive and everyone who met her were aware that she had a great deal of personal power and charisma. An impartial observer could not but acknowledge that there was no mighty difference between this custom and the powder pomatum and rouge of Europe, Phillips observed. It was the red rouge, the ochre, that had caused the trouble at the clay pits, if you remember. 
So Phillips joined the royal couple as they all made their way to Fort Wilshire in December 1825. There, Inrika and Totula entered the officers' mess for dinner. The British asked the Amatosa chief to arrange a dance for entertainment after both he and Totula had been given a glass of red wine each. We found the men drawn up in a row, naked, each holding a kiri, wrote Phillips in his journal. The women were in a row close behind them, and the soldiers formed a ring around them. The women commenced singing in a low voice. There was no sign of tension. It was party time on the frontier. Inglika leapt up through a sider's blanket and joined the dancing. Here was an atmosphere of easy goodwill, and in the moonlight of the Eastern Cape, the English soldiers enjoyed the spectacle of dance and song. However, things were not as they appeared. For as these soldiers and Amatosa and traders were enjoying their dinner and dance together, Lord Charles Somerset's rather dense son Henry was about to create chaos as he blundered around the frontier seeking his form of paramilitary justice. Henry Somerset had been told that some cattle were stolen from a farm on the frontier, so he mustered a commander along with Koikoi cavalry, trekpoos and artillerymen with rockets to hunt down the rustlers. Folks in Gramstown were alarmed they had been living fairly harmoniously with Amakosa. There was raiding and stock theft, but no violence since the last frontier war of 1819, and most wanted to keep it that way. But there's always a handful of bloody-minded folks in the midst of normal who tend to overreact to perceived slights. Colonel Henry Somerset followed a strict colonial view that the only law that the Amakosa would accept was the law of the gun. As you're going to hear, all this did was convince Amakosa that the only way to oppose the law was with the gun and a few horses. Back at Fort Wilshire, a messenger had arrived bearing bad news which broke up the evening party. Colonel Henry, they said, had launched an attack on the Amakosa along the Kat River Valley. The officers didn't want to tell their dancing guests, so quietly asked Ingrika to stop the party. All participants were given another glass of wine each and then ushered away from the fort as quickly as possible. The Koi Koi interpreters were kept in a corner so they couldn't tell the Amatosa what was going on. You see, Henry had set off early in December without notifying anyone of his intent, not even the Landrost in Grahamstown, Major William Dundas, and he was bewildered when he heard that Henry was seeking a few cattle from the Amatosa. His bewilderment turned into fury when he was briefed about what Henry did next. Colonel Henry Somerset sported a heavy cavalry moustache and carried his head at an arrogant tilt. He was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars like most of the officers in the Eastern Cape and had served as a 20-year-old with the 10th Hussars during the Peninsula War that ended in 1814. He had also fought at Waterloo and had followed his father Lord Charles to the Cape where jolly old dad had nepotistically installed him as Commissioner of the Stamps. Then later, as you know, he'd pulled a few strings to appoint his son new commander of the Cape Corps, and after that, commandant of the entire eastern frontier. Henry had a number of intellectual challenges when it came to administering a civilian operation. That he was courageous is not in dispute. However, in the eastern Cape he had a nemesis, and that man was Enrique's estranged son, Makoma. His Amajinkri people began returning to the Cut River Valley from where they'd been expelled in 1819. By 1825, Matkoma had set up his great place called Inkwenkla. That's Amatosa for the Kat River, and it was at the base of the Kat Bach. 
There were at least 16,000 of his people settled around here in 33 homesteads by 1825, and slowly Inrika's disaffected people drifted in to join him as well. He also absorbed scattered groups of the Gonakwa living along the Cut River Valley. Makoma's independent chieftain chafed Henry, whose cavalry moustache quivered in frustration as he monitored this Amakosa chief's development. Makoma was now the most important chief west of the Kai, and the colonists feared him. There was cattle raiding taking place, and they blamed the Amajinkri, while Makoma's people regarded the colonists' cattle as partly theirs anyway. The Spur law was used to justify raids back into the Amajinkri heartland to recover these rustled cows. These spoor laws led to patrols or punitive raids into Amatkoza territory to seize livestock. The commanders used the raids as an excuse to plunder and an attempt at forcing the Amajinkri out of the Cut River Valley area. The Settler's Mouthpiece publication called the Grahamstown Journal was now publishing, edited by Robert Godlinton and calling for English expansion into Koza country and the complete subjugation and dispossession of all Amatkoza. They were also railing against the new Ordinance 9 issued by the British, which regulated the right of the colonists to shoot vagrants, trespassers, deserters and escaped convicts they saw on their land. The settlers were now uncertain about what was lawful if they tried to defend their farms, and the Trekboers blamed the English, adding to the bitterness they already felt towards these red-coated, self-serving, high and mightier imperialists. The Amatkosa were cattle raiding, an inevitable consequence of their being driven from their land. Because they were also riven by internal conflict, they had become proficient at blaming each other for the robberies. This increased the frustration of colonial administrators. The expansionist merchant lobby safe in Cape Town and Grahamstown eyed the lure of lucrative trade and profitable land speculation to be derived from this region across the Kaiskammer. They were egging Lord Henry on. Colonel Henry Somerset had served with Cape Corps as their commander and fought in the last stage of the Fifth Frontier War, but by 1823, you've heard already how Governor Charles was facing criticism for nepotism and his spendthrift ways, so we are not surprised by what was going to happen next. The merchants were in Henry's ear. Do something, we can't have these causes causing chaos. The moustachioed Henry wanted to show these Amatkosa who was boss, and on the 4th of December, 1825, he rode out of Fort Beaufort at the head of 100 men of the Cape Corps and a commando of 200 Trekpoor burghers, as well as rocket carriers. His target was the Cut River Valley, and he took Makoma completely by surprise as his posse flowed over the Katberg Mountains from the north. He told all in sundry that he was searching for stolen cattle and horses and was merely adhering to the rules of the Spur law. Colonel Henry was following the stolen beasts and then forcing residents of villages through which the rustlers travelled to help the settlers track down the cattle. That was part of the Spoor law. It was a blunt force colonial instrument which was supposed to ensure that the Amatkosa chiefs policed each other. Instead, they pretty much ignored the law because they could blame each other. So Henry, in his paramilitary way, hired the posse that doubled up as a vigilante group and rolled into the Cut River Valley. He surrounded one village at dawn in mid-December, and as the residents ran out of their huts, Henry had them shot. They had nothing to do with the theft, but Henry and the commander's blood was up. Men, women, and children were gunned down. The posse galloped on to another village without so much as a bayou leave. 
He inflicted the same punishment on the residents there and took their cattle too. They were not the offending thieves, but no worries, said Henry. All Amatkoza were now thieving, so all should be punished. This was the kraal belonged to Botomani, chief of the Dange, who had been particularly friendly to the officers at Fort Wilshire. Their cattle were duly restored after Botomani's complaints, and then Henry's commando headed off to a third village, where they repeated the shoot-first, ask-questions-later tactic. Believe it or not, but once again he'd hit the wrong place. None of the herd he captured were from the farmers. Four villages, four shootings, four groups of dead residents. The last village happened to be Mbalu's encampment, who had never been a friend of the British establishment, so Henry felt obligated to punish him anyway. By the time Henry's rampage had ended, more than 20 Amakosa men, women and children were dead, and 7,000 Amakosa cattle had been seized. The colonel then redistributed 2,000 cattle to colonists who'd suffered stock loss and returned 5,000 to Makoma in exchange for a pledge not to raid the colony for livestock. This whole sorry saga reveals many things, folks. Firstly, the fact that it was impossible to force the Amakosa east of the Kai. They just moved where they wanted. Secondly, the settlers could not tell one Kosa chief from another, so the Spoor law, in a way, set up the next phase of South African history because Makoma was now more than just an implacable enemy. This idea about punishing everyone because of the sins of their neighbours was going to misfire. What goes around comes around. The settlers just could not differentiate between one chiefdom and another. The earliest Trankpurs, those who made it to the Zurfeld in the mid-1700s, these earlier travellers knew how to wriggle their way between the local leadership. They played one off against the other, and the Amatkosa did the same in turn. By now, Makoma was deeply angered and seeking revenge. His people along the Kat River had been ransacked, and the summary execution of children in particular had torn a chunk from his heart, so to speak. Makoma began to plan his response, and because he was observant, this included buying as many guns and horses as he could. If you travel around the Transkei and surrounding regions today, into Ponderland, around that picturesque part of the country near Lusikisiki, then down south and even along present-day Kaskama River, you'll see people, mainly men, riding horses. So it may be surprising to hear that when horses first arrived in the Eastern Cape, ridden by the Trekboers and the Dutch, Amakosa had been reluctant to mount these wild-looking beasts. By the 1820s, however, they were breeding their own tough little Cape horses and riding them in large numbers. Men who achieved a certain status in life amongst the Amatkoza society regarded owning and riding horses as a symbol of prestige. The British had made horse trading, if you excuse the phrase, illegal along the frontier, but as usual, the Trekboers, Khoikhoi settlers and Amatkoza just ignored this rule. It was an extremely lucrative business selling horses to Amatkoza men of prestige. It was also lucrative selling gunpowder, and the officials in the Cape began to note that there seemed to be more gunpowder leaving the colony than could be used by the settlers. Nevertheless, they turned a blind eye. Everyone, you see, was involved in illicit trade, with the settlers living near the Griqua and the Busters in the north along the Orange River indulging in a little cash creation. This historic trade in firearms and illicit goods forms one of South Africa's main economic backbones during the early development phase. It was the Wild West. Here they were, short-sightedly selling vast quantities of strategic goods like horses and guns and gunpowder and lead to people they had displaced from their land. 
But a short-term profit always trumps long-term realism, they say. When money rolls in, traders and merchants don't really care about what happens next. As long as they generate their big profits, they can always buy an escape route. It is true that the settlers scoffed at stories of the Amaklosa using firearms, complacently assuring each other these people couldn't use guns with any degree of competence. And in this, they weren't completely mistaken. Most Amaklosa could not practice. They didn't have enough of this important gunpowder and shot to waste shooting at bottles on a fence. And furthermore, they were always sold outmoded weapons such as the tower musket, or what was called gas pipe guns. These would be hopelessly outclassed against the latest British firearms. Meanwhile, Phillips continued his travels around the Eastern Cape, and as he did so, he began to pick up a real issue about how people referenced each other. He said that Amatkosa did not like being called the K-word, which was much in use. He wrote in 1825 that the Kosa were pleased on my calling them by their true title, and it was strange how they should ever have been miscalled. The name is Kosi plural Amakosi, and their country Amakosins. Missing clicks aside, this settler noted that black people regarded the K-word as an insult. They weren't unbelievers, they were Amakosa. This is an extremely sensitive topic. But don't you find it amazing that all the way back in 1825, this was already a sign that a semblance of dishonor had entered our lexicon? Thomas Phillips, by the way, was no humanitarian, he was a colonist, and as tough as the rest. But he was guided in his thoughts by a dispassionate outlook on human instinct, and listened closely when the Trekboers, the Khoikhoi, or the Amakosa spoke, and he didn't presume to tell these people how they should think about themselves. We'll come back to names people call each other in South Africa later. Right now, it's time to bid good riddance to Lord Charles Somerset. As the age of steam began, Lord Charles was gone. The first paddle steamer called the Enterprise rounded the Cape of Good Hope in 1825 with passengers and mail bound for India. This was the first long voyage attempted with steam outside of the experimental use of the Savannah, the Curacao and Royal William between Europe and North America. But sailing all the way around the Cape using steam was to revolutionize travel. When the steamer entered Table Bay it caused a stir. While it was forced to use its sails for much of the journey, the novelty of this new ship led to around 4,000 people visiting the vessel shortly after it docked on the 13th of October, 1825. The previous year, a group of Indian merchants had offered a prize of 100,000 rupees for the first steamship to complete a round trip from Great Britain to India and back in 140 days or less. The Enterprise had three masts and one two-cylinder steam engine and was under the command of Captain Johnston from Falmouth. Because of the need to store coal, only 17 passengers could be carried. It took 85 days to reach Cape Town and 113 days to reach Calcutta. Still, the performance was impressive enough for the owners to receive half the prize money. The main surge of the Industrial Revolution was just beginning, and the Cape was on the cusp of this change itself. Emancipation was imminent, economic liberalism was on the high seas, Colonial self-reliance was the new watchword. The investigating committee sent by Westminster to the Cape in 1823 had spent two years inquiring into every possible part of colonial life and sent streams of reports back to England. The Cape was to become a British colony in its fullest sense. It was to be moulded 
in British image, politically, constitutionally, as well as judicial and economic systems. The new vociferous white community, these English settlers, demanded freedom of assembly and speech. The Cape Colony was given a press ordinance based on the laws of England. Dutch paper money was erased. English was the official language, and the judicial system was replaced by English procedure, including trial by jury. A Supreme Court with an English Chief Justice was established. Local civil commissioners replaced the Landrosts, and magistrates arrived in districts. The civil service was being reconstructed along the Whitehall model. Contrary to this model was the existing Trekboer and Dutch lifestyle. The British recognised the Boers knew how to survive on the land and that they did not value material possessions regarding knowledge of survival on the felt as far more vital. Their concept of self-defence and their relations with black South Africans weighed against these new values imposed by Britain. Within the colonial boundaries of the Cape, the principal non-white residents were Khoikhoi, not black, and the blacks in the Cape were mainly slaves from West Africa or Angola or Madagascar, some from northern Mozambique. They did not regard themselves as Bantu, but either slaves or freedmen, and they were not indigenous. Many were released from slavery after working for 14 years, then became free men first, not black, not Amakosa. This is a crucial differentiation separate from the color of their skin. This differentiation is very hard for us to understand these days. Furthermore, almost 200 years of miscegenation had led to a new definition, the idea of coloured, which was to grow as emancipation developed, and Asiatic slaves entered the realm of freedom in the Cape. And so, finally, Lord Charles Somerset was recalled from the Cape of Good Hope in early 1826, leaving his eldest son, Colonel Henry Somerset, in Grahamstown. Henry was to fight the Amakosa all the way through to the Eighth Frontier War in 1853. Next episode, we'll swing around Southern Africa more generally, concentrating on the year 1826, a year in which Ludwig von Beethoven completed his string quartet in C-sharp minor. The first railway tunnel was built between Liverpool and Manchester, and the Paris Stock Exchange opened. And Russian mathematician Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky invented non-Euclidean geometry. Experts were to be flummoxed, and debated this new maths with its bent parallels. Just out of interest, a book called Euclid and His Modern Rivals was written some years later by Charles Ludwig Dodgson. We know him better as Lewis Carroll, who went on to write Alice in Wonderland. And finally, just a quick note to say thank you to all of my listeners. Incredible and exciting news. Spotify has listed the History of South Africa podcast episode 1 in the top 10 podcast episodes in South Africa for 2022. I'm so grateful for your support. It takes hours and hours a week to get the series together. And as I beaver away here solo, no team, no ponytail search engine optimization gurus, no production assistants, no marketing budget. It's just you and me. So the payback from you is that you're listening. And so, donkey, thank you. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter as long as it lasts. You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.